Well, we've been in the book of Judges, and uh, we have been doing something a little bit different through the book of Judges. Instead of looking at the characters, we've been uh, looking at a main theme, a central theme throughout the book, and it's this topic of spiritual entropy. We've been talking about what entropy is. It's the idea that if you leave something alone for long enough, if you leave something unaddressed and unattended, that it naturally tends to gravitate towards chaos and disorder. And the examples that we've been given is it's if you don't pull weeds in your backyard, what happens? Your backyard is full of weeds. If you don't pick up your house, your house gets messy. If you don't uh, address or attend to the relationships in your life and our relationships with God, those relationships begin to fall apart. And in the history of Israel, Israel is at a crossroads. They've come into the promised land in the book of Judges. They've taken, uh, they've taken the land. They, they've moved into Canaan. And God instructed the Israelites to completely eradicate the Canaanites from the land. But they failed to do that. They failed to completely eradicate the people from the land. And they're living in a time of peace and prosperity. Israel has been blessed. They are they're living in the land that God has promised them. But what happens as they live in this time of peace and prosperity is they grow complacent in their faith. And they begin to be influ- influenced by the idols and by the pagan ideas, by the culture surrounding them. And it leads towards sin. And eventually it leads towards pain. And they get overtaken time and time again by, uh, by enemy nations. And they cry out, to God for help, and God sends them a deliverer. And this cycle of sin happens 12 times throughout the book of Judges, that they just cannot learn their lesson. They keep going back into this cycle of sin. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at some of those signs of spiritual entropy, those signs that we can identify that cause us to slip into entropy and apathy in our spiritual lives And we've been talking about how to intercept those things. And so today in Judges 11, Israel is again in a cycle of sin. And there's a man named Jephthah whom the people cast out. This this man, is is, he's, he's an outcast because he was a prostitute's son. And they tell him to leave his household. His sons run him away. And the people don't want anything to do with him. But then Israel gets attacked by the Ammonites. And they come to Jephthah and they ask him to be the leader of their army. And they make him the head and the commander of the army. And then there's this really sad story. We're about to read a very sad story, church. I know, happy Sunday. I'm glad you're at church. But we're going to read a sad story today. And I don't know if you've ever made a promise to God that was kind of foolish before. Maybe some of you, like me, I remember a time when I was younger, I ate too many spicy Cheetos one day. And I was in the bathroom. I know TMI. But I've got a stomach ache, and I'm just, I'm, I'm saying, God, if you take this pain away, I promise I'll never again eat spicy Cheetos. God, has anybody made something like that, made a promise like that before? God, I swear, if you, if you, maybe your, your car has been on E, and you're just trying to get to your destination. God, I swear, if you get this car to where it needs to go, I promise you, I'll never say a bad word ever again. God, anybody else made those kind of promises before? No, I'm the only one? Okay, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Well, in Judges 11, verses 29 through 39, there's a man, Jephthah. He makes a vow to the Lord that was so foolish. And we're about to read this really sad promise that he makes to the Lord. Starting in verse 29, it says this. And then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. 
He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Meneth, as far as Abel, Keramim, thus Israel subdued Ammon. Verse 34, when Japheth returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of timbrels, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh, no, my daughter, you have brought me down. I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. And she and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father. And he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. What a sad story. There's some weight in the room. The question is, did he really do it? Did he really do it? Some have argued that he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter because the text emphasizes the fact that she was never married, that she was a virgin. So the idea is that perhaps he sacrificed his daughter to the Lord and she remained single and a virgin for her life, much like Hannah offered up Samuel to the, to the house of God and sacrificing the Lord. But I don't think that's accurate. I believe that he actually did sacrifice his daughter because he had made a vow to sacrifice the first thing to come through the door as a burnt offering. And his daughter even told him to do, do to me what you promised to God. And so what a horrible vow to keep. What a horrible promise to make to God. And if here's the thing, though. If Jephthah had read the Bible, if he had read the Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if he had read the first five books of the Bible, he would have seen that God detests human sacrifice. He would have known the nature of God, known the heart of God was against human sacrifice. He would have known that this was not a promise, was not something that the Lord was looking for. In Deuteronomy 18.10, God says this to the people. He says, let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. He says it plainly. This is not something I want. This is not something I want you to do. But Jephthah made this ridiculous promise to God that he felt like he had to keep. So if God strictly forbade human sacrifice, then, then why did Jephthah make this vow? Because the people living in the area, the Canaanites, that they didn't fully drive out. They were instructed to drive out the land, but they didn't fully drive them out. They practiced human sacrifice regularly to their god, Chemosh. In verse 24 of, of Judges 11, Jephthah sends a message to the king of the Ammonites, and he mentions their god. He says him by name, Chemosh. And he was the god of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And it was very common in those days for people in the area to make sacrifices to Chemosh. 
In fact, we have a story in 2 Kings 3 of the Moabites doing this very thing. In 2 Kings 3, verses 26 and 27, it says, When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. What a horrible thing. A horrible practice that the people in the land, and this is why, When the people, when Israel had come into Canaan in the first place, this is why God had instructed Israel to destroy everything. God had told Israel, when you come into this city, when you take the city, don't leave anything alive. And the reason was is because God says, I don't want any of this to remain in my people. I don't want any of the culture. I don't want any of the practices. I don't want any of the paganism. I don't want anything of that to exist in my people. So drive everything out, you guys. But Israel failed to do that. And they ended up taking Canaanite women and they, they started marrying. Israel began to marry with the Canaanites. And these practices became common for God's people. When God had specifically instructed that this is not something that he desires, not something that he condones. It's, it's very much against the nature of God. But Jephthah was only doing what he saw others doing around him. And he assumed it was normal to offer a sacrifice, even a human sacrifice. What's the point of this really sad story? There's a point to it, church. We've been talking about signs of spiritual entropy. And the sign of spiritual entropy that we get from this story is this. Is that we become so enmeshed in secular culture that we don't even notice when we adopt ungodly practices. We become so enmeshed in the culture around us. It becomes so normalized to do some things, even here in America, that we begin to think that we we confuse it with what God wants. We don't even realize that it's an ungodly practice. And Jephthah, he was so immersed in the culture that he didn't have a sense of how deeply wrong was the vow that he made to God. His thinking had been corrupted. The distinctives of his environment shaped his thinking, his choices, and even his leadership more than God's truth influenced his thinking and his choices and his leadership. Think about some of our cultural distinctives. What are some things in our culture, in America, that we experience? Many of these things go pretty unrecognized, pretty unaddressed. We've normalized many of these things. But what about the idea of individualism? This idea that... that uh, that you can make it on your own. You don't need anybody else. That if you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, you can build a kingdom of your own. You can build an empire of your own. You don't need anybody. And you want people to look at you and say, wow, look at what he did. Look at what she accomplished all by herself. This idea of individual. When you read the Bible, you understand that the community of faith, the kingdom of heaven is all about community. It's about family. It's about being part of the body of Christ, being a part of something that's bigger than just yourself. And the truth of God's kingdom is that you cannot do it alone. You cannot individualize your spirituality. You cannot individualize your future because your future is wrapped up in the community of faith. It's wrapped up in the kingdom of heaven. But this idea of individualism has become so commonplace and so normative in our Western society, hasn't it? What about the idea of the American dream? 
the American dream versus God's dream. We have this, this concept of the American dream that I'm just going to become this workaholic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to work hard. I'm going to get things done so that I can have the good life that was promised to me, that I can have the good life that people talk about. When they, when they talk about prosperity and success in America, I can have the American dream. But when you read the gospel, you understand that God's dream for your life is to be a servant is to submit yourself to people, to be the least in the kingdom of heaven so that he can exalt you. It's this idea that we, are, we exist for other people. We exist to bring peace and prosperity and, and to, to the lives of others and to share the love of God with other people. It's very different from God's kingdom, but we've adopted this idea of the American dream as something that we're supposed to pursue. It's normative. What about the idea... Of greed versus generosity. We live in a society that says, yeah, what you made is yours. You earned it. Keep it. Work for it. And we become kind of a greedy people. We keep all of our resources and our our finances and our time, our schedules. We keep it with a closed fist in God's kingdom. He says, no, I want you to live with your hands open. I want you to experience a life of generosity that blesses people because I'm about to bless you. Just like God blessed Israel so that Israel could bless the nations, he blesses the church so the church can bless the nations. He blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. We're supposed to live with our hands open, this idea of generosity. But greed has crept into our society, and it's become normalized. What about the idea of sexual experimentation? Versus sexual limitation. God's design for sex and for marriage is to be between one man and one woman. It's this idea that you are supposed to be saved for one person. But instead, we live in this society that has normalized that, no, you, you do you. You follow your heart. You, you follow what feels good. You experiment. You figure out where you land. But it's opposed to the kingdom of God. It's opposed to what he wants for our life. Or the idea of immediate gratification versus patience and waiting on God. Starbucks is just built down the street. Talk about, oh, oh, we got some opinions in the room. I didn't, I didn't mean to bring it up. Sorry, I didn't know this was such a, such a touchy, I just talked about sexual experimentation. You guys are upset about Starbucks. Come on. You know, talk about a microwave culture. Talk about immediate gratification. Talk about something that you get right away. You go through the Starbucks drive-thru and you're gonna get, you're gonna get it within a couple minutes. A full latte, a full mocha. But we live in this, this, this culture of immediate gratification that, that I, I don't, I shouldn't have to wait for it. If I wanna watch a movie, I'm gonna stream it right now. If I want, if I want this, I'm gonna get it right now. But the kingdom of heaven values patience and waiting on the Lord and, 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 and allowing God to bring it in the right timing. See, there's all sorts of things that we've brought into our culture. And if we're not careful, if we don't understand this, that this is a sign of spiritual entropy, if we don't understand that we've become so enmeshed sometimes in our secular culture that we don't even notice when we adopt ungodly practices. And God's heart is for you to stand apart. His heart for you is to be different than the rest of the world. It's to be set apart so when people look at your life, they see Jesus. 
They see the kingdom of God. They see something that is different from the rest of the world. They see answers that the world doesn't have. That is what we're called to do, to live in the kingdom of God. God does not want us to be shaped by the thinking of the world. He calls each of us to be transformed in our minds so we can determine what his will is. Romans 12, 2. It says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. To be transformed by your mind. He wants to change your thinking. He wants to change your expectations. He wants to change what you think your future should look like and give you a picture of what his desire for your future is. And let me tell you, God's plan for your future is so much greater than our plans for our own future. So how do our minds become transformed? How do we intercept this sign of spiritual entropy? We allow the authority of God's word to govern our lives. We allow the authority of scripture to direct our entire life to guide our path, to light up the path. So for the remainder of our time together, I want to talk about what God's word, what submission to God's word brings to our life. When we allow the authority of Scripture to lead us, we intercept this sign of spiritual entropy. We we hold fast to God's will in our life. And so submission to the word of God brings, number one, it brings revelation. It brings revelation. If you remember in our series from last year, we did a series throughout the tabernacle and the temple, and we discussed the different elements of the tabernacle, the different elements of the temple. And one of the elements in the tabernacle was the bronze basin. And when you stepped up to the bronze basin, it was this bowl. It was like a giant birdbath full of water where the priests would wash themselves before entering into the holy place. They would wash themselves at the bronze basin. And the bronze basin was an Old Testament illusion to the word of God. It's this picture of the, what the word of God is supposed to do in our life. In fact, the book of James compares the word of God to a mirror, just like the bronze basin. Because when you imagine stepping up to this giant birdbath and you look inside of it, you'd see a reflection of yourself. You'd see a mirror of yourself. And this is what the word of God does. It brings revelation to our lives. And James, in chapter 1, verse 23, he says this. He says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must always do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. A mirror has two functions. Two things that a mirror can be used for. The first one is vanity. The second one is revelation. Now, I don't know if you've been to the gym recently or if if you can think back to many years ago the last time you went to the gym. Like me, I have to think back a couple years ago. And I, I, I remember when you go to the gym, you always see some muscular dude and he's curling right in front of the mirror. And then he's got his phone in the other hand, and he's trying to record himself and post it on Instagram. Yes, 
Yes, but see, these rooms, they're surrounded with mirrors, and you catch dudes flexing all the time, staring at their biceps when they work out. And, And that's what a mirror can be used for. It can be used for vanity to say, look at me. Look how good I'm doing. I'm such a good person. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Let me get there real quick. It says this. Jesus says, two men, up, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Look at me. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his chest, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is giving a picture of what the word of God does. It either brings vanity or brings revelation. Oftentimes, we think that we're a good enough person... And the only reason you think you're a good person, if you ever think that you're a good person, the only reason you do is because you compare yourself to the person sitting next to you. You compare yourself to other people. And you say, man, I'm doing so much better than that other person. I'm so thankful that I'm not like them, that I've got that marriage, that I've got that issue, that I've got that temptation, that addiction, that habit, that behavior. God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like them. I'm doing pretty good for myself. Come on, we've all done this, church. And we puff up our chests and we look at ourselves and we say, man, I am doing good. And we use the Bible, we peer into the mirror, and we get vanity. We look into the mirror of Scripture and we think, wow, I need to share this with that other person. They really need to hear this. Because their life needs help. Oh, I'm so thankful I don't struggle with that. I should should text them this Scripture verse. Now, you may not be addicted to drugs or or addicted to sex, but you might be addicted to shopping. You might be addicted to gossip. And we're called to look at the log in our own eye before addressing the dust that's in another person's eye. You may not swear like a sailor, but maybe you have unforgiveness in your heart. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you haven't forgiven. We can use the word of God to compare ourselves to others, or we can use it to reveal the truth about ourselves in comparison to God's standard and allow it to bring revelation. Remember that this bronze basin in the tabernacle, it's made of bronze, and it's the biblical symbol. The bronze is the biblical symbol of judgment, and judgment is a bad word in our culture. We don't like to talk about judgment, but there's a type of judgment that actually saves us from a severe form of judgment, and it's self-judgment or self-examination. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one. He says, but if we could examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Paul says, if you can examine yourself, if you can allow the word of God 
to reveal something to you and allow God to search your heart and examine yourself, you can actually save yourself from a severe form of judgment. The word helps us to accomplish this. In other words, in order to get the broccoli out of your teeth, you have to know first what hygiene is. In order to, for lack of better words, in order to pop the pimple, you've got to know that there's a pimple there, right? You've got to allow the word of God. I know, gross. You've got to allow the word of God to show you. We have to allow the word of God to show us our flaws, to show us what it is that needs changing in order to be transformed by the word of God. The word of God, submission to the word of God first brings revelation. The second thing is this. Submission to the word of God brings transformation. It's supposed to change us. It's not a book that we read and think, oh, that's good. I'm going to put that on a sticky note and put it on my mirror. It's supposed to change your life, bring transformation to who you are. Second Corinthians 3, 17 through 18 says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. And we, here we see that we're being transformed when we peer into the mirror. When we look upon the glory of the Lord, when we look upon the word of God, we are being transformed in the image of Jesus. So as the word of God brings revelation, we allow it to remove things from our lives and add other things, and we're not the same person. We become transformed by it. The gospel turns you into a new creation, makes you a new person. To avoid spiritual entropy, we, not, we, we need to allow the word of God to bring transformation to our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. Church, that's good news. That is good news for me. I pray, I hope that that brings hope to your life. That I'm not the same person that I once was. That I am not an enemy of God. I once was an enemy because of my sin, but because of Jesus, now I'm called a friend of God. I'm called a child of God because God's word, Jesus, John chapter 1 says that Jesus was the word in the flesh. That the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And when we receive the word, We're essentially receiving Jesus because Jesus is the fullness of the word of God. He is he is God fully expressed in the flesh. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what he's about, what's important, what's on his heart, you look at the life of Jesus. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, read all about the life of Jesus. And you see, this is what God looks like. We're being transformed by the word of God. Some of us have experienced a transformation when we said yes to Jesus. But how many of you know that that transformation does not end? We are continually being shaped and molded throughout our life. When we become more and more like Jesus, and we call this spiritual growth. We call it discipleship. Becoming more and more like Jesus is a process of discipleship. Let me remind you that transformation only happens for those who are submitted to God. Those who have offered their lives At the altar of sacrifice said, God, you can have all of me. You can have every piece of me. I want to be changed by you. I want to be transformed by you. And we allow the word of God to shape us. And the third thing is this. When we submit to the word of God, it brings 
liberation. It brings freedom. Freedom. Psalm 119, verse 45. David, the psalmist, the, great, the greatest poet in the Bible, the greatest poet of all time, he wrote this. He says, I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. David understood that devoting yourself to the word of God brings freedom in your life. God gave us his word not because he wanted to take away our happiness and enslave us to a list of rules. If I'm honest, when I was younger, that's what I thought the Bible was. I thought the Bible was a list of do not do's. You can't do this. You can't do this. If you want God to be pleased with your life, you can't do this. You can't do this. But God did not give us the word of God to enslave us to a list of rules. He gave us his word because he wants the best for our lives. And he knows that the final he knows the final destination of each decision that we make. He is the author. He knows where the end of the road is. And each choice that we make, God knows where it leads. He wants us to live free from guilt and shame. That's what we're freed from. When we walk according to the ways of the world, when we do what culture tells us to do, when we become so enmeshed in our society that we adopt ungodly practices, we enslave ourselves to guilt and shame and fear and anxiety and stress. We enslave ourselves to those things, but when we follow the ways of God and we submit to the word of God, we free ourselves from those things. We allow God to free us. We become liberated from those things. The Bible is not about restrictions. And it's, it's about opening up access to God's presence. The bronze basin in the tabernacle was this prerequisite to entering the holy place and moving closer to the presence of God. When the, when the priests would come to minister to the Lord, they first had to go to the altar of sacrifice. And they had to sacrifice something to the Lord. And we bring our lives as the sacrifice. We bring ourselves to the Lord and say, take all of me. They're called living sacrifices, is what the word says. We say, take all of me. You can have everything. We offer ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices. And then the next thing after the altar of sacrifices, the priest would come to the bronze basin. And they would have to wash themselves and allow themselves to be purified by the word of God. Is the symbol here. That you allow the word of God to wash over you. You allow it to bring you allow it to bring revelation and transformation. And only after they washed themselves at the bronze basin could they enter the holy place where God's presence was. Remember that you are a priest. The Bible says that we all are royal priests. We're, holy, we're a holy nation. We've all been called to minister to God. Not only is the word of God a prerequisite to further ministry to God, it's, nece it's a necessary aspect of every believer's worship life. If you want to draw close to God, if you want to hear his voice, if you want to know what he's like, you have to read the word of God. You have to immerse yourself and allow your life to be governed by the authority of Scripture. See, the Israelites, they knew God. They knew God. They were released from Egypt. Just like some of us, we get saved. We know God. We thank Jesus that he's delivered us. But even after we're saved, we wander the desert, don't we? And there's these tendencies to go back to Egypt. We have these, these patterns and behaviors that aren't fully stripped away. It's not like at the moment of salvation when you say yes to Jesus. Suddenly, you don't have any more temptation in life. Suddenly, you'll never sin. 
ever again. That's just not how it works, is it? I'm sorry if somebody promised you that that's how it works. It's just not how it works. But what happens is we say yes to Jesus. We allow him to come into our life. And then we begin this process of figuring out what it looks like to model our lives after Jesus. This is the process that God brought the Israelites through when he brought them into the desert. He said, I know I've released you. You're freed from Egypt. You're no longer slaves, but you still have thought patterns. You still have behaviors and tendencies. You're still complainers. You're still not grateful for what I've done for you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you here until we learn this together. I'm going to wipe this away. The cleansing of God's word is what brings daily freedom to our lives as we read what God desires for my life. And I'm going to ask Christina to come up as we begin to close. I have a friend who's a pilot. And uh, I've actually, I don't think I've ever flown out of an airport more. I, well, I, that's a lie. I have. But I have a friend who's a pilot. He came one time last year to pick me up here at the Afreda Airport. He flew into the Afreda Airport. He owns a lodge in Wyoming, Pinedale, Wyoming. He picked a friend and I up. We hopped in his little plane, and we began a six-hour flight to Pinedale, Wyoming, to spend a week at his lodge there. And it was just an incredible time. But as we were in the air, we were... We came to the spot where we were flying through some dense fog. And I couldn't tell which direction we were headed. I look out the window and I go, how do you know that we're going up or down? You couldn't even tell where the plane was tilted. If it was tilted up or plane, or tilted down, it was just such dense fog. And he told us that in order to get your pilot's license, you have to undergo a series of trainings and tests. And one of those tests, it's an instruments test. And you have to fly to your destination without looking out the window, and you can use only your instruments. They have you undergo this test where you, you keep your head down, and you're, you have an instructor in the, in the seat next to you, and you're supposed to just keep your head down, and you can only look at the instruments that are on, your, on the panel in front of you. It's the only thing that can guide you. And it teaches you to rely on the plane's navigation system. The Bible is like those instruments. The Bible is the thing that keeps us going in the right direction. In the confusion of society's values. In the confusion of society's norms. And what culture deems normal. And something that we're supposed to all just accept. The Bible is the only way to find the correct path. And relying on the word of God. And without it we're lost. Without it, we're lost in the clouds. We don't know which way is up and which way is down. Let me end by saying this. The blessings and the benefits of the Bible, they're not inherently given to anyone. When you read the Word of God, it, promise, it promises followers of Jesus a lot of blessing, a lot of peace, and joy, and love. The blessings of the Bible, they're not inherently given to anyone. They're given to those who obey the Bible. Not those who just read it, but those who obey the Bible. The greatest mistake of a follower of Jesus would be to read the Bible and walk away without asking, what is God's word asking of me? What is it revealing to me? Not, who can I send this scripture to? Who needs to hear this right now? But what does God want to tell me when I read this part of scripture? In John 14, verse 23 and 24, Jesus describes his love language. How many of you know the 
the five love languages. Quality time, acts of service, physical touch, help me out here, gift giving, and encouragement, words of affirmation. And Jesus in John 14 is describing to his followers what his love language is. He says this, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. What is God's love language? It's obedience. Obedience to his word is his love language. God wants to reveal himself to you through obedience to his precious word. And that's how we intercept this cycle of sin. That's how we intercept this this process of entropy that we all at some point in our life find ourselves in. I'll be the first one to admit that I've I have gone for months and seasons of my life where I haven't picked up the word of God and it's just sitting on the shelf collecting dust. Or I haven't been intentional about pursuing God or I haven't been in, intentional about pursuing the community of God. And this, I notice that in seasons, those seasons of my life, this process of entropy takes place. I become complacent in my faith. I start watching TV shows I probably shouldn't be watching. My language changes. I start getting frustrated more easily. All because I'm missing something that God meant to be a daily practice, that he meant to be a daily thing in our lives. And that is just reliance on the word of God to allow our lives to be governed by the authority of scripture. Can you stand with me, church? I want to pray that uh, for those of you, maybe, maybe, um, maybe you're you're here and, and you're that person who's the Bible has been sitting on the shelf for a very long time and, and you just don't know how to read it. Maybe you pick it up and you're like, I, I just I wish I could understand this more. I wish that I knew what what was being talked about here, but I don't know where to start reading. I don't know. I don't know how to accurately read scripture. If that's you, I just want to say a prayer over you. And I'd love for you, for every person in the room, to just to put out your hands like you're receiving a gift. And let's invite the Holy Spirit to bring transformation in this area of our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move into this place. God, touch our hearts. Ignite a new fire, a new passion for your word. God, I pray that the words of Scripture would come alive, that they would jump off the pages. And for those who, who don't know where to start, for those who are, who are hungry, but maybe they're just confused and they're lost, would, begin, would you begin to bring revelation to them? Would you begin to bring clarity to them? Would you give them access to tools and resources and unlock a piece of their mind that allows them to see you more clearly? God, we, we just want to start by being in your presence. We want to we want to rely on scripture. We want to be governed by it. We want it to direct our lives. And so Father, I pray that you would ignite a new fire in all of our hearts for your word. In Jesus name. Amen. Knowing that reading the Bible is important is not enough. Many of us know that working out is important, but not a lot of us do that. Many of us know that, you know, you should probably call your mom once a week and check in. Not all of us do that. We know it's important, but we don't always do it. Knowing that something is important is not enough. You have to fall in love with it. And when you fall in love with Scripture, when you fall in love with God's Word, there's nothing that can tear you apart from it. 
we have to learn to fall in love with God's scripture. Amen. I love you, church. We're going to start grow class in about 15 minutes in the cafe. So if you'd love to join us, I'd love to see you there. God bless you. We'll see you next week.